So color insight then is that invitation to keep turning toward rather than away from the particular aspects of our everyday experience that bear the stamp of this thing we call race and, and or racism. What do we know in our own experience about race and racism? How have we been relating to those things? Hi, I'm Derek Mills. Welcome to The Globe Podcast. In this episode, I speak with Professor Rhonda McGee. She's the author of The Inner Work of Racial Justice, Healing Ourselves and Transforming Our Communities Through Mindfulness. She's a professor of law at the University of San Francisco and a deep practitioner of mindfulness and illuminator of paths to social and racial justice. Professor McGee and I talk about the implications of white hierarchical power and racialized identity. She shares her explanation of color insight, Color Insight is an approach she developed, which is rooted in mindfulness and compassion practices to help people see how our experiences of race and racism differ radically from person to person, and also as a set of tools to support transformative actions individually, collectively, and systemically. Color Insight starts with the acknowledgement that race plays a part in our daily existence. We also talk about the lasting ideas of social and racial justice leaders like Dr. Martin Luther King Jr., James Baldwin, and Professor Eddie Glaude. Our conversation was recorded shortly after the attack on the U.S. Capitol in early January 2021, and that day informed everything we discussed. This was a beautiful conversation. Professor McGee's book has been extremely helpful for my personal journey. I hope you enjoy our discussion about how we can open our minds and hearts back to loving one another and face our collective complicated history as a way of moving forward. I'm excited to share this with you. Here's my conversation with Professor Rhonda McGee. Ah, see, sigh of, uh, sigh of, uh, here we are. <laughs> ha, 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 here we are. <laughs> Hi, Professor McGee. Hello. Hello. It's good to be with you, Derek. It's great to be with you. I'm just so grateful to be here with you today. You know, your book has been extremely helpful for me. I I hope everyone listening who hasn't read it will be inspired to read it by the time we get to the end of this episode. Thank Um, you so much. But before we dive in, I want to timestamp this. We're in an unusual moment in our country's history, in the world's history, and I want to note that we're recording on January 14th. I'm hoping we'll launch the podcast by mid-February along with this episode. Uh, However, unfortunately, uh, with history as our guide and the many serious warnings from law enforcement, sadly, we can be somewhat certain that more life-changing events will unfold over the coming weeks. So if we don't refer to those future events that... um, may occur uh, in our conversation. That's why. Yeah. Uh, so before we discuss your book and your background, I, I just want to say that I'm feeling really horrified. I'm feeling sad, ashamed, anxious, afraid, and much, much more about the state of our country. And you, know, you are someone who has devoted your life to serving our country, our laws, You educate our future lawyers, judges, politicians. You fight and advocate for social and racial justice and equality. And you are deeply committed to your personal practice and in teaching others how to engage 
their practices, you know, to ultimately help us humans become more skillful at connecting with our common humanity. Mm-hmm. So before we start, you know, given your expertise and your experience, like what is your reaction to how we humans are treating each other in our country? Mm. Oh, thank you. This is a beautiful question at this time. And um, I, I very much appreciate um, the invitation to reflect on this with you. I'll add, of course, you all know this, but I'm also a veteran, of course, <laughs> and, and having served even very, very briefly, you know, I mean, for me, I just trained in ROTC and served in the reserves and in the National Guard for um, a period of time, a short, relatively short period of time. But I, but I name that because there, this, in, in, uh, you know, I, there's so many ways that we can serve this beautiful democratic experiment, and so you know, I honor every every way of serving, and I, and I really appreciate the way you frame this question because I see that you do too. Yeah, it's a really hard time. It's a really hard time on so many levels, and it's a heartbreaking time for me because, um, yeah, as you as your um, introductory frame for this question um, reflects, and you know, it, clearly you know, and you and and it seems we share it. I have a deep love for this country. You know, I um, in so many ways um, it is it's grows out of my deep love of humanity, you know, in that um, I think while we as individuals can do very, so much, we can do so much with the, the agency we have to, to, you know, work on self-regulating and making ourselves the best that we can be learning, taking advantage of our educational and training opportunities and service opportunities. There's so much we can do as individuals. And at the same time, we're all always already embedded in a social, cultural structure and landscape. And I often say, barring some of the words from you know, Peggy McIntosh, one of my teachers, a writer about white privilege, we live in systems and systems live in us, right? So, so while we have, you know, the, to me, there's this dance between, you know, the more perfect union that is our political experiment, what we're trying to uh, to perfect in with this this sort of democratic system, um, this liberal legal system that we're part of, part of, and the three different branches, and you know all of the history of that. You know that's a kind of a political frame for ideally the thriving of each individual, and so that personal to interpersonal, right? The processes by which we engage with each other around different competing notions of the good and uh, the best ideal way to effectuate the promises of our democratic system, right? That's that interpersonal struggle that we're involved in when we talk about politics. And there's a power struggle in that. So the personal, the interpersonal, then the, and we're always embedded in, in I will say, systems. Um, and so how to live as well as we might, given the history of the very different ways that these systems have impacted each of us and, you know, made some available opportunities for some more than others. And, you know, we are inheritors of so very much, so much that's quite beautiful, but so much that is um, we've all 
where we've all seen suffering. So the legacies of white supremacy, the legacies of kind of male dominance over women um, and other forms of gender expression um, and performance, um, the class, the way in which um, access to basic, basic resources, health, for health, for um, you know, education, so that we can take advantage of the opportunities presented by the system. So these disparities always haunt us. And the way in which the system has, you know, differentially distributed the, the kind of bounty of this beautiful experiment weighs on me as a person who cares about freedom and justice and opportunity for, for all of us. And frankly, underlying that, you know, basic dignity, you know, this, I have this deep belief that we all are entitled to thrive and that, you know, that our lives, all of our lives, you know, matter in a deep and a profound way that's not about a slogan. So it is very, very painful then to be at meeting with you in this moment um, in the wake of January 6th, but more so in the wake of everything that's led up to January 6th in the way of the kind of devolution of our, I think, common sense of what might be possible if we turn toward rather than apart, if we seek common ground rather than division. In my experience, just over the last four years, there's been such a devolution. And actually, I know that really this isn't really a four-year project. This is, you know, an ongoing aspect of our political struggle to, um, you know, this tension between coming together around common narratives and common goals and common aspirations across our backgrounds of real and perceived difference, our identity differences, we can come together or we can push apart. And that tension, of course, has been a part of our history. And it's not just U.S. history, but it, we have our own special flavor and set of challenges around it. So we know it's a part of our history, not only ours, but certainly U.S. history. And we know that over time, we can either turn toward or away. We can you know, be moving in the direction of the, the support for common humanity and, and common good, or we could be moving in apart. And so, you know, from the long reach of history, we've seen the ebb and the flow of that. And it's just been a particularly sad thing to see how successful the politics of division have been in the last, um, you know, the most recent era of our history. Well, thank you for being here during such a painful time. I don't take that for granted. Thank you. Thank you. You mentioned so much that I hope we can come back to specifically systems, the concept of turning toward uh, Peggy McIntosh. I don't think we'll get into her great work, but I can post uh, links to her more important uh, mm -hmm. work in the show notes of uh, the thriving of each individual plus the interpersonal. It's the inner and the outer and, and ultimately the power struggle. Uh, you know, I think all of that makes me think of a section you wrote towards the end of your book. Do you mind if I read that or would you prefer to read it? Sure. No, I mean, let's see. Let's, it'd be great to hear your, hear some of that. I'd be honored if you read it. Okay. I have, I have a lot of quotes. You, you have so many quotable moments in your book, so there may be numerous quotes. Uh, coming. Thank you. <laughs> so towards the end, you write, if racial identity does not seem to define your existence, 
This may be especially important to reflect on and investigate. We are often defined by racial identity, even if it shows up in most of the ways we deny or resist its relevance in our lives. And I read that because I read it as a call to an invitation. In fact, your whole book, all of your talks, every time I, I, I've experienced you publicly, you, you are inviting us. And you know, part of what is so powerful about your book, in my experience, being with it and its impact on me is that you, you are essentially holding us and walking us into an inarguable invitation. And I think what I mean by that is, you know, one of your central themes is that anyone on a journey of learning about themselves or anyone interested in the project of self-betterment or the ongoing lifelong process of becoming just a better human also inherently includes a, a receptivity an openness to that invitation and one sort of doesn't have a choice and my you know, our, our team laughs when i make that statement about certain things it's it's that moment when you're facing a decision uh, do we go down a path that's values aligned or a path that isn't values aligned and when you're at that fork in the road you kind of don't have a choice <laughs> so it's a it's it's a thing we joke about internally that when, when i tend to say it <laughs> yes. uh, and you know beautiful it's beautiful that you put it that way <laughs> thank you yeah. and same at the community cultural and societal levels if we want to be a better country and live up to our original promise as a united nation we have to hold each other as we accept and re-accept over and over again that very invitation and you're but you know at the same time you're also so clear that some have more work to do than others or more specifically different work and just the last thing i'll say uh, is that uh, you know in your book you interweave history law psychology wisdom traditions deeply personal stories of your personal inner work, the stories mm -hmm. of others attempting to understand and navigate their racialized identities, you know, all coupled with guided prompts for practice, really guide, really powerful guided prompts for practice that one maybe starts with a journal alone in, in, in solitude or in, in a small group, but ultimately brings those out into the world and you're clear about that too. And so, you know, the sum total of all of that, the way you know, your specific approach and your voice works on, on me is that it, 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 it's, it finds the seams. You know, if it, 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 the, the hidden inner crevices you know, cracks, like, cracking open the seams mm -hmm. and shines light into them. Uh, those seams being, you know, any conscious or subconscious like, friction, resistance, defensiveness, and so on that, that I experience in, 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 in uh, working through your prompts that, uh, you know, as I, that I experience in my own work of unpacking and, and my conditioning and, and my understanding of, of my racialized identity as a white cisgendered straight male. Yeah. So there isn't a question there. I just wanted to say a somewhat long heart, warm hearted, thank you for writing it. Thank you so much. And, you know, your reflections uh, are touching me. I mean, I'm, I'm just going to say I'm prone to be like 
slightly tearful at this moment, owing to the, as you, you so beautifully pointed to, the moment that we're in. And so um, I, I would be touched by those words at any moment, but I'm particularly touched to hear you share in this very rich and nuanced way how, um, you know, my offering, how, how you've received this offering, the offering of my, of my work. Um, and of course, I'm curious to hear a little more, maybe an example or a story or two of yours as we go. Um, but I just want to say how much I appreciate uh, this sharing of, of gratitude. Um, you know, people, we write things. I've written a lot of different types of things. This is um, a particular, uh, this, this work took three years from, you know, beginning to end. And in a certain sense, it took much longer than that. But, you know, like, <laughs> um, because as you know, right, I'm drawing on a lot of different things and had been think, practicing, reflecting, working with folks, actually approaching the topics of mindfulness on the one hand and racial equity and, um, you know, the what I call the allied disciplines of mindfulness practice study you know, reading, looking at history, um, being in communities of practice, gathering together intentionally with other human beings and, you know, creating those spaces where we can um, teach and learn together, all grounded in, you know, an ever more deepening commitment to mindfulness-based practices for awareness, for compassionate engagement with each other. And um, so that work you know, has been my passion for more than two decades. And so when I say the book took three years to write it, really, you know, I mean, that's a conventional statement that's, you know, some true in a certain sense, but not not the whole truth, like every other thing we ever say. <laughs> um, so thank you. Thank you so much, Derek. I want to come back to the book and your process. Uh, I too am prone to tears and I, uh, I can't fully empathize with your experience, uh, and, and, and your version of tears. Uh, but this can be a, a tears, uh, a tears, what a tears allowed zone or a tears flowing zone. <laughs> yes. Right. As, as you know, that's very, very aligned with my approach, right? Yeah. Constantly, my students in my law classes, frankly, sometimes quietly, although they know, I know, but they sort of, you know, they talk amongst themselves and they love my classes, the seminars, I'll say, but they've nicknamed them, you know, Feelings One and Feelings Two, my seminars. <laughs> oh, I, I love that. I love One's that. called Contemplative Lawyering, right, where we're thinking about the professional identity development of lawyers and allowing the whole self in, right? I'm in a Jesuit school. We pride ourselves in that. And yet not all of our classes are really invitations for everything, including the tears, and so contemplative luring, the identity development class, and then I have classes on race and law, and I'm teaching that one this semester. And um, some students who went from contemplative luring to the race class said, I came because I wanted I, feelings one, I had to have feelings two. <laughs> <laughs> wow. Yeah, thank can, you. Can, can you imagine a future where, <laughs> uh, you know, the, the, the types of people that you're educating have more access to feelings and emotions? That That's powerful. So... Um, 
you know, I, in one of your interviews, you ended it with the expression that you, you feel like you're on a journey that's kind of like we're walking each other home. And, yeah. and anyone who reads your book will, will, will sense that. And, you know, when I think of home, I mean, home can mean lots of different things for different people. It can be a trigger you know, or, or the opposite. Uh, but it also makes me think of origins. And so this, yeah. I'm wondering if this is a good time for us to understand, you know, how, you know, you've, you've shared the positive influence of your grandmother and, you know, how she introduced you to mm -hmm. uh, a variety of positive influences. Um, one being this centering practices on something more, uh, and then your first experience with mindfulness and meditation, uh, kind of by chance as a result by picking up the Bhagavad Gita. Maybe, yes. can we, maybe we can start with connecting the dots from those important early childhood, early adult experiences and any other pivotal aspects of your journey uh, that ultimately then lead you to uh, your color insight approach. Yeah, I, there are these points that I have discussed around um, being introduced to a kind of contemplative way of being in the world, um, you know, at the feet of my grandmother, Nanny Suggs, born in 1906 in North Carolina, right? A time in which we now know we were really in that post-Civil post War restoration of white supremacy in the South. And so my grandmother's life was really, let's say, colored by um, all of the imperatives of the restoration of white dominance through segregation. And so, you know, she had a hard life. But she did have a, an access to her inner spirit that she really kindled every day by waking up before dawn and, and, and engaging her own personal practices, Christian-based, but very clearly about centering in a sense of the deeper ground or what, what might be a way of touching into what I mean by home, the sort of deep or underlying fundamental sense of belonging that is, I think, our birthright as we live and breathe on this planet. And so, you know, engaging with my grandmother or witnessing her was a deep teaching on many levels. Uh, and yes, another point of uh, my in engagement with a contemplative mindfulness-based practice was that moment where I, you know, first encountered uh, formal mindfulness meditation through reading uh, uh, a book called the Bhagavad Gita for Daily Living um, by um, an early transnational meditation teacher who came from India to the United States and established a meditation community and wrote a variety of books. His name is Eknath Esoran. So, he, you know, he his approach to this generous offering of a kind of a formal structure for meditation again, drawing on his own heritage, but offering it freely to this Western Bay Area, California, was where he was literally founded and, and landed. But that the, the generosity of that effort to bridge um, cultures and divides through this, you know, profound, um, I think, deeply hopeful um, vision that all human beings might benefit from practices for 
clarifying, knowing the mind more effectively and clarifying and our ability to see and, and self-regulate and to engage with each other from those, from that places of more clear seeing and greater capacity to regulate our own reactivity to what we see. So, so those are very important pieces. I will add, I don't talk about this piece very much, but I, I also was one of those kinds of kids. <laughs> I mean, I, I have a partner, <laughs> the same partner on, from whose shelf I pulled the book, the Bhagavad Gita, you know, he, he, my own partner's family is from India originally. And so he happened to have had that book on his shelf. Um, and, you know, he and I, from time to time, we talk about how we grew up and, um, recently I sort of asked him, now, when you were young, did you ever just find a quiet space where you could completely shut out all light, like an interior space, there would be no light, like a closet or somewhere and just like sit in. For anyone who's been to India, that, that would be a funny, <laughs> funny question. <laughs> <laughs> right, right. But he grew up in America. Oh, I'm, family, so, I'm sorry. That was yeah, just an yeah, assumption. Yeah. No, his family was from India. He grew up, you know, in the suburbs of Detroit, okay. <laughs> in this little suburban house. Yeah. But yeah, so, but his parents had grown up in India. And so he had some space, but he never was, you know, one of those kinds of kids to go and find a s completely solitary space and with no light and just sit there. And I was one of those kinds of kids. So there's there, I mean, I think that I was drawn for whatever reason to a, a, a kind of a desire to connect um, to my own life energy and life force in a way that was not, you know, through the lens of socially constructed identity and even my name, right? I mean, I really, as a kid, um, was drawn to kinds of experience of now I sort of feel as we're a little bit of a kind of a inner mysticism you know, a desire to sort of feel the sense of, and sometimes it, it would strike me while out watching, you know, the clouds, like it's true, as is true, I think, for many people, just looking and seeing that. So that was another place. I wonder and awe. Yes, exactly. Exactly. Deep awe. Deep awe. And so like the multi-layeredness of experience you know, where we have to do what we have to do to make the most of every day, get up, go to our classes, our school, teach, read, whatever we have to do, form that identity and create that resume and, you know, get to work. While at the same time, maintaining awareness of this great mystery that we haven't, you know, that we somehow found ourselves engaging with as we live and breathe, right? Um, and the gift of that. So I've, I have been fortunate in a certain sense, I think, to, to have always had a bit of a sense of that. But what I found was that meditation and communities of practice and, the, as I say, the allied disciplines of, you know, practicing for awareness and then studying and learning from teachers of, of old and then learning together from each other in communities of practice I think all of these things helped deliver my, me to myself in a certain sense more. Like I felt like I could be more at home with that part of myself that already felt awe by engaging with these practices. Yeah, I, I, I too had an interior childhood and some early experiences of, of wonder and awe connected uh, to nature and, and my own interiority. And yeah. I, I can resonate with that. Do we want to talk about color insight here? You, you do mention that mindfulness is essential 
to color insight. So I don't know yes. what, what comes first. Do we need to define mindfulness? And the reason why I'm, I'm hoping you define mindfulness is because you mention it all throughout the book. And mm -hmm. for someone who may be comfortable and familiar, familiar with a version or a definition of mindfulness centered around sort of a hyper American rugged individual individuality might not understand your version, your definition yes. of mindfulness and your definition of mindfulness is, is, is what I would want the world to think of when the word is used. Yeah. So I have many different examples throughout your book where I, I just love how you express it. So maybe we start there and then move into sure. color insight. Yeah. So, yeah, I mean, I do have different ways of thinking about mindfulness. So I'll say some, and if you have one or another that you want to drop into the conversation, I'd love to hear it too, that you saw seen in my, my work. Um, but, you know, one of my teachers, of course, is, is John Kabat-Zinn. And so, um, you know, I'm one of my beloved teachers, in fact. So the definition that he has offered of mindfulness being about, you know, paying attention in a particular way with a kind of, let's say, friendly loving um, openness to what is arising, right? So paying attention on purpose, but with this sort of friendly openness to what is. And, and he, he has emphasized this certainly in his later teachings, um, and that way of being with reality that results. So it's not, it's not just those moments in which we pay attention at all, right? It's not just the particular practices for being present and focusing, which can be high, you know, often are, you know, what we emphasize in the sort of way in which we present mindfulness in the Western world as like a personal tool for productivity and success, <laughs> right? We emphasize, right. you know, this sort of purposeful, a way we can become more aware and more focused, really important. Um, but by re referencing the kind of friendly openness the kind of loving openness to me that underscores the deep mm, ethic of care that is inherent in mindfulness. We can talk about the phrase self-compassion as part of that and compassion for others as part of that. Caring, uh, desire to alleviate suffering in the traditional language um, of many of the teachings from which we've um you know, uh, found ourselves into what we call mindfulness. So suffering, alleviating suffering, starting with ourselves, bringing, um, you know, practices, awareness practices to the work of alleviating our suffering and each other's suffering. Um, so that in and of itself speaks to a kind of both inner and outer internal and external mindfulness. And I think from my perspective, and, you know, supported by my own ongoing journey to study some of the origins of what we call mindfulness. I feel there's a lot of support for this part of the perspective, too, that it's not just an inner, per inner or personal practice, but it really has always been about that um, lively engagement with what we might call inner and outer and recognizing the fluidity of that and that it's, you know, that we're always embedded in a world, 
And so how could mindfulness not be also about um, becoming more aware of um, the ways that what we call our inner experience, our interior, our personal practice may make us more skillful in our engagement with all that we might tend to think of as our outer experience, our external world. So for me, mindfulness is inevitably about both that inner and outer. And it's not just the particular practices that we engage in. It's the way of being with reality, the way of being in relationship to ourselves and everything that arises that may come from the practices, studying, and being engaged in relationships and communities of practice to support all of this. Yeah. I, as you were speaking, I'm trying to both listen and look over the versions of, of mindfulness that I've pulled out of your book and, and you mm -hmm. do cover it. At one point you, you do go a little further to say that we're, we're choosing not to be at war with reality. Exactly. And yes, yeah, so much of, of what you say is about not just the inner work, but the outer work as well. And you know, I think as we move into color insight and race and, and, and racialized identity, you know, there's, uh, you know, you, you, you use the frame of mindfulness to contain and facilitate entering into that process and being in that process with an expanded capacity. To, to sit with with pain, discomfort, et cetera. And uh, yes. you, you say at one point, you know, anger will arise, shame will show up, vulnerability and defensiveness, resentment and distrust will pretty much always be in the room. There will be tears. If we cannot <laughs> handle these emotions and reactions in ourselves and in others, our efforts, however well-intended, are headed for failure. And if we cannot do so with compassion, we may end up promoting more injury than healing. Yep. Yeah. So for me, you know, Color Insight really is about taking these practices of mindfulness-based awareness, the fierce capacity to, to sort of recognize what is accepted for the moment, not for forever, but long enough to understand it, right? Not be at war with it. How can you understand something you're already fighting? Um, so recognize, accept it, and then investigate, want to know more, bring that curiosity that is the gift of life, right? That ability to, to kind of access don't know mind when you're faced with something you really don't understand fully and not feel shame because you don't know, right? So I'm now moving through an acronym for another way of thinking about mindfulness to me is that acronym RAIN, recognize, right. accept, investigate. And that can take many forms and degrees and modes and modalities. Um, and then do all of that as best we can with a kind of non-attachment or a, a, an ability to kind of um, not make a new story of, you know, this, okay, this is it. Like, it's like, okay, this is what you see for now. This is what we're experiencing for now. It's not the whole story. It's not, you know, an invitation to wrap a new identity. I am the person who sees this so clearly. I am the person who has privilege. I am the, right. It's 
it is it is that ability to to kind of go deep in terms of opening the aperture on what may be seen and experienced and contacted, but also to have that ability to recognize all of that as inherently embedded in a world that's ever changing and radically always impermanent. So bringing those kinds of ways of being to every aspect of life really is my own personal, that's my own personal jam. You know, yeah. <laughs> the thing that I, that wakes me up is like, whoo, wanting to wake up to every aspect of life, including however, you know, what we call race and racism. So, and that's where color insight comes in for me. It's a way of describing what it's been like for me to take all of these practices of now what we're calling mindfulness expanded in these ways that we've been describing it and just allow them to operate in the space of reckoning with, recognizing, being present to race and racism and yes, other forms of bias, but just for now and in my work for for this project to really keep coming back to 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 race, partly because it's so hard for us to stay with it. So um color insight then is that um that invitation to keep turning toward rather than away from the particular aspects of our everyday experience that bear the stamp of this thing we call race and and or racism. And um, we can unpack those terms, but I think we all know at least a little bit about them. And that's where we always begin. What do we know in our own experience about race and racism? What have we, how, how have we been relating to those things? How do we, what's our personal relationship to race, to our own racialized identities? to racism and the hierarchies of race as, as facets of, of our everyday life right now, not to say only the history, but of what ha- what's happening right now. So turning toward rather than away from that aspect of our experience and really having like that fierce courage. I mean, cause you know, to, to turn away, to turn toward aspects of our experience that we've really been kind of trained to turn away from. We, in subtle, often subtle ways, we've just been rewarded for not looking at this. Um, as, and, and that's true in different ways for each of us, I'll say. So the invitation is look at, don't take my word for it. Just look at what happens when you speak up about race, when you ask people about race. Like just, you know, so, so to turn toward it then does require a certain kind of courage, I think. And I want to applaud that in all of us that would say, you know what, I know I've been trained a little bit away from this. I actually, I'm going to try to disrupt that a bit and turn toward it. And then, of course, color insight involves this deeper capacity to then perceive, to see what there is to see about it. Um, Which, of course, if you're bringing awareness practices, you're recognizing, you're pausing, accepting long enough to see more deeply. Parts of it, you, you know, you've been unable to see before. Um, and we can talk more about that piece. Then, you know, deepening our ability to be with others around this work. So moving from our personal development of courage and capacity and awareness to then deepening that into personal ability. How can I be with you, my brother, you, my sister, 
other human beings who are, you know, coming into this conversation from their very, 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 let's just say, no matter even if they look like us, even if they're so-called in our same racial group, trust, we all have very different experiences around this. So how can I be more effectively with others as they, as we all reflect and create opportunities to reflect on this aspect of our experiences? And, and finally, then how can we, from that place of personal engagement, interpersonal opening up more space for interpersonal engagement together, working together on this. How can we develop work? <laughs> the work of liberation of um, minimizing actually the way in which race and racism have caused harm. How can we, from the, from the, the place of becoming more aware, act in favor of liberation for ourselves and for others. So that to me, I mean, you know, it's kind of a lot, but, that's what I think of when I think of what I was trying to capture with Color Insight. You pack so much into this book. It, it could easily be a, a year-long course or even the foundation for an undergraduate degree. And, you know, one of the things you say about Color Insight, that in order to grasp it, you know, we really need to unpack racism, whiteness, colonial colonialism, history of oppression, yep. injustice. And, uh, you know, I don't want to gloss over any of those. And I, I, I have some, I have an, there's something that I want to attempt as we get towards the end of this conversation. I don't, don't know if, if how it will go, but I think maybe we'll, we'll get into some of these, um, uh, as we go, uh, the, it's, you know, the last thing about color insight, you mentioned, you mentioned it as a flow. Well, there's two things I want to ask about it. You mm -hmm. mentioned it as a flow and, and part of the experience of, of the flow of color insight you say is moving, uh, is the opposite of being fragile and moving between racial awareness and other lenses of our experience. And I, I just, I just thought that that was beautiful. It's, um, yes. it, it's like a, a tool. It's, um, mm -hmm. you know, as, as, as you, you know, you mentioned also, uh, towards the end of your book, uh, this concept of, um, humanity consciousness and you reference mm -hmm. a few papers that that you wrote uh, that dive deeper into that I, I don't think we can get into that here mm -hmm. uh but i recommend people check them out uh where you know i you know i was raised to be colorblind and you know, it seems to me you're proposing color insight slash humanity consciousness as an alternative yes and so yeah. I, I just wanted to clarify that with you yes absolutely like, do, you, do you see yeah. that being for example, I don't have children yet. I hope, I hope someday, uh, yeah. but I would want them to be in schools where the social contract, the, 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 the organizing principle around race, whiteness, racialized identity, you know, is this organizing principle? Is that, is that where you hope this goes? Yes, yes, yes. I mean, um, just to, you know, to kind of briefly kind of really <laughs> uh, focus on that. Um, you know, the idea is we've we've lived through a period in the post civil rights era, in which the the kind of um, dominant narrative for how we move past our past is to is to be colorblind. To um, you know, and it comes from, as we know, I think it certainly came from a, a, a moral argument. 
um, a, a kind of a recoiling from the racism of our past, the explicit white over black um, and other, you know, forms of racism arraying around that hierarchy. But like those um, points of um, the anchor, right. you know, white on top. Um, the value gap. Through- yeah, and then the black black on bottom, and then all of the different machinations around that. So, recoiling from that, we we you know drawing on Martin Luther King, drawing on other really beautiful, highly aspirational philosophical invitations to sort of um, look more at the content of folks' character, not the color of their skin, et cetera, et cetera. This um, idea of responding to racism by just never mentioning race, never noticing race, um, seemed to be the best we could offer. And I, I understand that really. Uh, and, you know, we all know that um, actually once you've made something, something for it like race, such an important feature in our lives, once you've given such value and meaning to it in terms of people's uh, options, where people live, folks they can marry, et cetera, et cetera. There's no way we're not going to notice race. And so we are had this, many of us for a generation or so were put in this vice of like, we're told we can't talk about it and notice it. And yet we are still noticing it. We're, we have to, it's, it's a part of our psychological um, makeup that we create these schemas that include, you know, shortcuts for thinking about the world. They include, content around race. And so we were all, I think, made more anxious because of this idea that we, you know, couldn't talk about something that we had been constantly in ways obvious and not obvious, trained to notice and to, um, to navigate. So allowing the bringing together of the truth, right? Like the truth that our brains are formed to recognize race. Our society continues to rec- recognize race. And um, we therefore then are more sane and more able <laughs> to deal with the difficulties of our lives if we can also talk about these things, if we can find ways to unpack how race is showing up in our lives as opposed to just simply you know, putting a Band-Aid over it and um, hoping it would somehow go away. We now see the consequences of that all around us every day. It went nowhere. <laughs> it well, it went places, but it didn't go. It didn't go away. It went underground, and um, those of us who might have been more in the vanguard, yet more um, engaged in the work of making um, more effective our ability to address racism, were kind of um, stunted. Were kind of you know had our ability to think well and to engage well around this. Um, you know, really hampered by, you know, the downside of colorblindness as a modality for addressing racism. And then, of course, you had, you know, people uh, embracing that idea in bad faith. Yes, let's be colorblind, and therefore we will never, ever address anything around race. In fact, we will quietly allow the resurgence of the hierarchy. We will not, you know, do the things we might do to disrupt the inequitable patterns of distribution of resources that are present in our society as a consequence of generations of racism because we're colorblind now. And and that that Uh, got baked into law. Exactly. Yes. Law and policy. Institutions. So 
we're trying to heal from all of that now. And I think, yes, ideally going forward, we who believe in um, the possibility of human engagement from a place of recognizing our common humanity, recognizing that though we may look different and speak differently and come from different backgrounds, we are one human family that's sort of forgotten who we are. We who would like to engage around with each other from that perspective are um, supported actually by ability to talk about race in ways that the color blindness ideology makes it difficult for us to see. So my effort has been to say, look, race consciousness, being able to speak to that is an adjunct to deeper humanity consciousness, not not a barrier to it. Right. An adjunct along with a number of other pillars, I'm sure, that we, we just we can't get into here. Yes. There's, there's so much mm-hmm. to fix and, and, and mitigate. Uh you said so much there. I you mentioned this the vice, the vice that we're in, the mm-hmm. the, the inability to, to to see and acknowledge truth, the the racism and anti-Semitism and, and just the tendency yes. to, to, to tribalism and othering that just simply didn't go away. And uh and and, and, and how do we navigate all that to come back to being one family. And I, I'm a, I'm a little sheepish about going in this direction because I, 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 don't, I don't think we can cover it all, but I feel like I, why else are we here? Why else are we in this conversation together? So I'm, I'm going to attempt this and yes. uh, let's see what happens. You fully have my support, whatever it is. Okay. All right. Thank you. I, I'm, uh, thank you for that. I, <laughs> You know, something you also do is, you know, you you connect the dots between whiteness, pain, pain avoidance, yes, emotional intelligence, therapy, multiple paradoxes around race, mm-hmm. the process of making race and race making, yeah. mm-hmm. uh, the subconscious, uh, the, the process of growing up, like what does it mean to become yeah. an adult, you know, an adult that accepts responsibility and, and, and is accountable yeah. and gosh, uh, so I, there's a, a recent episode on code switch, a fantastic podcast, which I'll post in the show notes. Uh, mm-hmm. they, they quote professor Eddie Glaude and, and James Baldwin. Do you mind if I read those? Oh, please. Yeah. Yes. Okay. I love those both. Yeah. Okay. So Professor Glaude, uh, his most recent book was another that was, has been extremely helpful to me. And, you know, I just want to say as a side note, had it not been for your book, I don't think I would have been able to experience what he was saying and how he was presenting James Baldwin with the same amount of openness prior to reading your book. Mm. Oh. Thank you. We could say a lot about that, but I don't want this to be about me. I don't want to center this around me. No, um, thank you so much just for saying that because others have said some version of that. Like this okay. approach is providing a kind of foundation that is helpful. So we can talk about, maybe we won't say more about it, but I hope, I hope uh, 
with humility. I hope that's so. I hope that's so too. I, I, yeah, I was curious about that. I'm glad you said that. So Professor Galad said, and again, I'll post the, the link to this episode. The messiness of the world is a reflection of the messiness of our interior lives. You know, we travel and we move around the surfaces because we're afraid of what's in the dark cellar. Like we don't want to look the terror squarely in the face. But you know, America is like never, never land. And we all want to be lost boys and girls where we don't want to be responsible or accountable. We'd rather be safe and secure in our innocence. And then they intersperse with beautiful music and very effectively intersperse James Baldwin in multiple ways. One in which um, I chose, one that I chose, you know, one of the things we, he says, one of the things that most afflicts this country is that white people don't know who they are or where they come from. That's why you think I'm the problem. I am not the problem. Your history is. And as long as you pretend you don't know your history, you're going to be a prisoner of it. When white people talk about progress in relation to black people, all they are saying and all they could possibly mean by the word progress is how quickly and how thoroughly I become white. I don't want to become white. I want to grow up and so should you. Obviously, his, it's much more powerful in his voice. Uh, but then mm -hmm. Professor Galad again says, people either don't know or don't want to admit what has happened in this country and that you and that you can't be innocent in the face of that. The innocence is the crime. And then he says, we may not be unique in our sins, but we may be unique in the efficiency. Let me rephrase that. We may not be unique in our sins. We may be unique in the efficient way in which we deny them. And, you know, this efficiency that he's referring to, we're seeing now play out yet again from <laughs> yes. voices uh, um, in, in, uh, in certain I don't know how to phrase it, but we're, we're hearing mm -hmm. it again in the public discourse. Mm -hmm. Yes. And you know that reminded me of, of a section of your another section of your book where you say, "For me, it is obvious that this work is essential to helping illuminate and alleviate an often buried dimension of pain running through so much of the world's suffering. And then you say, why isn't this equally obvious to others? And, you know, you also mentioned that you're not a therapist and that this book is not a substitute. So I, I, I'm curious. I mean, it, it really, you know, my personal journey through therapy and addressing pain, you know, over mm -hmm. a variety of years past, you know, kind of culminating in, in, in other work and, um, some of the things we've spoke about and that that's a long journey. And that, mm -hmm. that has required me to go to places that are uncomfortable, not just yes. historically, but, but continually. And to, that has expanded that capacity to sit within that pain, not to escape it or extricate or sort of uh, exempt myself <clears throat> in any way, but uh, to, 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 to be there, as you say, in, in allied practice. And yeah, I, I, don't, have a, I don't have a question. I, I, I just, mm -hmm. I was just wondering if like, these dots that I'm trying to connect yeah. you know, between mm -hmm. this really deep, uh, 
almost Jungian Freudian work mm -hmm. that seems yep. to have to accompany everything else we've discussed along with the systemic broader structural changes. Yes, so, I think that's right. Over to you. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, gosh. I know, I well, know there's a lot there. Yes, I'm still trying yes, to work this out in my head, but I'm, I, I just feel well, like that it's, it's the only way. Yeah, no, 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 no. We have to at least turn, point toward that aspect of the work. We're not going to fully unpack it. We're not even, we're barely going to begin, but on this uh, podcast and in this conversation, but, but I think what you're bringing forth here is the deep core of my project. The deep core is about helping us become more and more capable of um, really unpacking the layers of delusion of, you know, st avoidance strategies, denial strategies, et cetera, et cetera, that we have um, been acculturated to in the United States in our own particular way, as, as Eddie Cloud was, I think, pointing us toward, right? You know, this is something that happens in different cultures. We have our own version of it. But so for me, there's both, there's an aspect of what you're describing that really is about a kind of human tendency to um, drive ourselves crazy in maybe one of three ways. I mean, there, so there's a lot of complexity to it, but the mindfulness, what I call mindfulness in the deeper traditions of Buddhism, Buddhist psychology that underlie it, um, proposes that perhaps all of this reduces to, you know, three different ways we make ourselves unhappy. You know, one, we attach tightly to ideas, notions, feelings that are inherently impermanent, but we just don't want to let certain things go. And so the holding, the, the trying to regain or reattach to or solidify aspects of what it means to be alive that are inherently impermanent and inherently subject to washing away or changing, right? That's one way in which we suffer. And, this, you know, we could be attaching to a story of ourselves or our history or what, what makes the country great or whatever that is. The more we attach to it as it's changing and needs to be let go, the more we can suffer. Um, another way is to, again, this is sort of the flip side of this, to push away something that's trying to come in, right? You know, so to resist, you know, um, it, so attaching to things that are that are that are inherently in you know impermanent um resisting things that are here and present and just wanting to be seen or or just remaining kind of in a fog of unknowing in some way or deluding ourselves in some way these right are at the core of what um you know there's a lot of nuance to this and there are a lot of different ways this happens and there's a lot of different ways to um, uh, you know become more aware of it but it, you know what I love about um, the underlying uh, traditions that we draw on for what we call mindfulness is this kind of elegant simplicity say like if you really really break it down you break it on down we're probably doing one of three things whenever we're really really distressed when we're really getting you know, uh, disconnected 
from our clarity, from from our from that sense of home. We're probably doing one of one of three things. And um, we have lots of different ways to do all those things more than we can unpack here. And we sometimes need more support for really seeing how we're doing it. But the invitation is to look at the habits, the patterns, conditions that we each uniquely have and have adapted or adopted that um, are about resisting what needs to be dealt with attaching too much to which, to what needs to be let go or just staying in the fog. And we all have different habits and patterns around that, which is why I do firmly believe it is about what's my individual curriculum, what's my individual journey on this, and how can I use these practices and the supportive communities around them to, to find my own way, to find my own way back home. Just to say more specifically, yeah, race is its own delusion and, and whiteness has been this kind of deep delusion that, as uh, Tanahos Hasse Coates often said, people who think of themselves as white need to kind of address. Um, but it's not only about you know the, the delusion of whiteness; it's the delusion, in a way, of a fixed notion of any one of these identity racialized identities. Whiteness has, has this such a huge and often unexamined stamp that we kind of really need a kind of sustained uh, invitation coming through many different doors and with, you know, uh, different types of support to, to get folks who think of themselves as white to really begin to unpack. How is it that folks who immigrated to this country from all different parts of the world, Europe, yes, but the Middle East, you know, some parts of Asia, different places, um, came to this country and found themselves in a social cultural process of making this thing called whiteness and picked up the mantle and jumped right on in. What was lost in that process? Why was this a bargain worth taking? Because there were a lot of things lost. There were connections to other parts of the world, language. Um, but there was also pain people were escaping because a lot of people have been pushed or were otherwise, you know, coming to America, having suffered wherever they were in Europe and elsewhere. Right. Language, practice, yes. like the, the, yeah. you know, the kind of centering practices, you know, maybe your grandmother was trying to pr yes. preserve or maybe lost and, and pass on exactly. to you. Music, mm -hmm. right? Just a sense of, you know, deeper connection to the earth. I mean, so there were many, many things that were lost in the bargain of becoming a white American. Now, it's not really for me to unpack all of that. Although, if you've read my book, you know, like many Black Americans, my background is more mixed than is obvious, more, let's say, more interraced than is obvious, right? Um, nevertheless, because I, you know, don't self-identify as a white racialized person. I do think those who do and who in a way must, given the way co the culture is going to constantly reify that around folks who look a certain way and who have a certain um, set of phenotyp, you know, characteristics, features, right? Whiteness is something that the culture is, is, is going to keep attaching to certain bodies, and so it's not just about resisting, like not thinking of ourselves as white. It's knowing that others will think of you as white. 
if you, whether you think of it consciously or engage, if you know that others will, then there's some invitation, I think, to really unpack what is all of that about? And, and what, what might they, how might um, we all be missing opportunities to heal from some deep trauma? That, and, you know, so there are other folks as well who speak about the deep trauma embedded in the invitations of whiteness and white identity. Um, My Grandmother's Hands by um, a teacher whose work I admire as well, um, Resma Manaku, right? I love that So this, Yeah, that's another one, right? Because it's inviting us really to look at the trauma, the deep, deep, multi-generational, intergenerational trauma underneath the reification of this idea of whiteness. To me, whiteness as a counterpoint to otherness. I mean, because that white over black, that white and other line is really the, one of the more significant lines. What does it do? It seeks to kind of protect folks from, from being vulnerable. It displaces vulnerability to those folks, right? In this culture, those are the people who are going to be vulnerable. Phew, I can, you know, having come to this country and become white, then I know there's going to be some other people who the police batons are going to be coming down on first, the worst education, the worst neighborhoods, all of that. And gosh, I kind of understand, you know, we all, there's no safety net in this country other than maybe whiteness. I think whiteness was presented as the safety net. And so, you know, I get wanting that given the harshness of the rest of the culture, but that's really, I think, the deep invitation of this work to say, you know what, the bargain that that is a bargain. I don't, I'm going to, I'm going to be engaged in trying to resist this and reject this. And I know that's not easy and you may never fully No, No one of us can fully reject the privileges that are being arrayed around us. I can't reject fully the ones associated with my status as a, you know, natural born U S citizen or a cisgendered heterosexual woman Et cetera, et cetera. There are privileges, if you will, that society is structured in that we can't fully uh, disavow or disabuse ourselves of, but we can be in this engagement. We can try to engage in waking up. And from that place, from like, you know, moving at least out of the fog of not knowing into, all right, I'm awake. This is actually happening. It's a feature of my experience, it's causing harm to others. My not being able to talk about it is part of what is creating a political divide that could destroy the entire experiment. So while I might not be able to disrupt these patterns entirely, I have work to do. That's what the invitation of my my work is about. (sighs) Coming full circle to to the tears, you mentioned, uh, I don't know how to pronounce his name, Resma Menachem, is that? I believe that is correct. Yeah, we've only connected um quite distantly so i haven't had a chance to really personally check with him i i I hope to meet him someday that book Mm -hmm. yeah i think he refers to white body supremacy and really goes deeply into i know you're also well practiced in 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 just human embodiment and 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 rely on that as as your practice as part of your practice and Mm -hmm. he, uh, he just very viscerally makes the case for the impact on black bodies that everything that we're discussing has. And 
Yeah, that that's another fantastic resource as a as an empathy expansion, as an attempt to to to, to engage in empathy expansion and awareness expansion um, process for especially for 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 white people like me. Yes. Yeah. So I want to ask you about something you said in terms of, and this goes back to the paradox of race and its inaccessibility uh, as as a social construct and, 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 and hard for many to, to access because it, it's, it's identity. Uh, mm-hmm. and you say something that seems very penetrating or perspicacious and, 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 and mysterious, you know, you, you refer to personal justice practice as love correcting that within ourselves that revolts against love, which is the foundation of well-being. <laughs> Yes. Yes. Right. I mean, you know, ultimately, I'm one of those who's foolish enough to believe that we might some kind of way create a world in which it is possible for us to to love in a non-transactional, non-manipulative way, you know, a way that I think I happen to think. Um, humans are capable of, but also greatly fearful of. Um, so I think, you know, this idea of um, justice being love, correcting that which stands against or revolts against love. You know, I'm drawing on Martin Luther King and and his teachers, really, for that definition. Um but I think at the heart of it, this idea that um, justice arises as a first approximation from this personal commitment we have to writing our relationship with with um, with love, and you know, unpacking what that means in a way that's not about har- hallmark, and it's not about you know trying to manipulate somebody, and it's. I don't even think we really fully have the language for what I'm trying to describe. It's ineffable, here, but it, ineffable, deep engagement with yeah, all of what life has to offer. Fellowship, yeah, and it's a deep engagement with, yeah, with the ineffable, with right, and with that in each of us. So I think, um, you know, for me, injustice, you know, I can talk about it as a maldistribution of the resources that we all need for thriving. But this idea that we all need and deserve resources for thriving comes from a place of a version of what I would call love, this care and this, um, again, closely aligned with this awe that comes from just recognizing the gift of my life, your life, all our lives. Is this for me the sense that we all therefore deserve respect to be see each other, right? To re-see each other through this lens, respect. Um, and first starting with ourselves, because respecting, re-seeing ourselves, having been, you know, brought up in a world that's constantly trying to reinforce. Now, this is beyond slightly, you know, expanded beyond race as a way of diminishing our sense of ourselves. We are in so many ways, um, tempted to reduce the sense of what it means to be human to what we can put on a resume or, you know, what clothes we wear, where we live. Like it's, it's a struggle 
to have the sense that we belong, no matter what your racial background, I think, in this country and in the world right now. It's a struggle, right? Across all elements of our lives, especially the workplace. Exactly, right? Uh, yeah. So, so for me, at the real deep, deep core, you know, is this really invitation to, to deepen that sense that we, we already belong. We're, we're really already good enough, you know, that the whole effort to sell us on the things that we need to be, you know, to be, to, to look like we deserve to be alive is a Madison Avenue, right? It's a kind of a creature of the capitalist economic structures that we live in. So it's unpacking all of that and saying, actually, we do here, but we do belong. And from this place of really getting that, you know, then we, you know, that's, so that's also a part of the broad project. So when I speak about color insight and reckoning with race and racism, for me, a deep foundation, my own personal responsibility, the growing up part and the growing down part, growing my roots into Mm -hmm. being alive here now on this planet is, is to realize, um, you know, that, that I need to wake up to the different ways um, I've been shaped in lack in a sense of, I don't have enough shaped, uh, you know, to kind of be a taker of resources rather than to feel a sense of contentedness with enough, right? Just enough and not needing excess, excess all the time, all the time, which is, again, deep training of our culture. So there are many, many different things that need to be unpacked. And I think Eddie Gloud and his comment about we're all kind of, we're all in a way, you know, migrants from, you know, move, trying to find some sense that, you know, we matter in this country. Yeah. And so race and racism is just one, one part that needs to be unpacked. But really, it's, it's such a much deeper project than that. Well, maybe I have one more question for you, but maybe someday I can have you back on and we can unpack some of this in greater detail. <laughs> you know, earlier, I failed to mention that, you know, as you were mentioning whiteness, that uh, I know for, for myself personally, the, the, the few groups that I've um, joined coming in and out of um, over this past year, you know, working on with other uh, racialized, ident- white racialized uh, humans, uh, mm-hmm. I, I highly recommend. Uh, one last question. Can I ask you one last question should, I, 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 I suspect it'll be a relatively short answer okay okay so i had uh uh you know some podcasts ask a consistent question to their guests and so sometimes they work sometimes they don't and i had kind of mm-hmm. given up on figuring out what what mine would be and i was sharing with my wife lisa who has been part of glow since 2010 uh, when we met actually before we had anyone um, on payroll and uh, her, her role has evolved over the years, but she is now chief impact officer. And so when we, we launched, we had connected um, uh, an aspect of, of giving back, uh, concept of you know, one's practice uh, you know, is also a practice of giving back. And um, by giving to ourselves, we give to others. And uh, for a whole variety of reasons, which I won't get into here, but I will in other episodes, I, I wasn't able to, to make that happen and, and bring it back quickly enough. And that's happening now. And so she's now our chief impact officer and, you know, our current uh, why statement celebrates our connection to one another and our planet and how self-care supports these connections. And, you know, in order to show up for ourselves and our communities and our planet, we have to take care of ourselves. And so the question I have for you is how is this interconnectivity between your own self-care 
care for our planet evident in your life? Uh, or another way of looking at it, in what ways do you connect with our planet and how have these connections deepened your desire to protect and preserve our environment? Now, your dedication page is quite lovely. It's titled, If the Path Could Speak. I don't know if, if that's something that you'd like to read for this, or maybe you have a, another mm. another answer that you, you'd prefer to, to give. Well, I mean, you mentioned that dedication page, and um, I will just say that that is a touchstone, right? This idea that, you know, we really are swimming in one life, actually. You know, it has these beautiful different manifestations that are fascinating. And so fascinating that we can lose sight of the fact that we're really all really in it together. And so the if the path could speak, beneath these words rests the awareness of generations and of generations and of generations that have come before. The awareness that each of us is a vital part of the earth that we call home is of the wind, the rain, the fire, and so inherently belongs. If the path could speak, it would say, we must assert that which already exists deep within us, namely a sense of kinship with all those with whom we share the earth. On repeat, in every language, unceasingly. And that is really, you know, it sounds highly aspirational in a certain sense, maybe, and maybe vague. But what I mean by that is I really, for me, I, I, you know, I get up every day and in some way reconnect as soon as I can on that day to a sense of my being, you know, gifted with the breath of life on, on this one planet floating already in the heavens. So feet on the floor, um, consciously breathing in and breathing out noticing, right, the forms of life around me and trying as best I can to, to minimize harm, right, to minimize the suffering, to have that footprint of mine not just be about, like, the ecological, environmental, like, yes, I don't want to, I am going to be flying less. It's one of the gifts of the COVID for me, right? I'm trying to, in various conventional ways, minimize my kind of environmental footprint. But I think it's more than that. It's just constantly remembering, yeah, that ineffable, that, frankly, you could use the word spiritual, that breath of life that exists in so many ways around us and deserves respect and awe. And so that's, you know, I, I walk and pay attention, you know, to the seasons. I, you know, rooted myself here in San Francisco partly bereft of a home, right? I, my, I don't know where my people are from. I think, again, my own life is just like everybody else's in this country, this kind of question mark of where do I really belong? And so feeling my way into a sense of indigenous belonging, if you will, like I belong on the earth. I belong where I've laid my roots. I belong where I've, you know, loved people and taught folks. But I also have responsibilities that come from that to this earth, to acting in a way that can minimize harm to people right here, right now in my own space and environment, but ideally in some sense beyond. 
that to me is how it's living, like multiple ecologies of not just environmental responsibility, but ecologies of justice that intersect with that. Thank you. Thank you so much. Thank you for being here with us. Thank you. I really, really am honored, um, have been honored uh, by this entire conversation. And I really, really appreciate all that you are and all that you're doing, Derek. Thank you. Again, I'm honored, grateful, grateful for you. Where can people find you? So I do have a website, rondavmcgee.com. I will probably be more and more on um, one or another app like mindfulness.com. I'm agreeing to offer some teachings there. Um, and I am thinking of putting together a community of practice around the book, which is a, ideally just a broad, ongoing, drop-in-as-you-can community where folks who are engaged in this work can feel a sense of co-engagement with others and co-create that space. Thank you to our entire team behind the scenes at GLOW. I'm so grateful for your care and commitment to serving our members around the world. Thank you to our teachers for so beautifully sharing your gifts and talents. I'm also grateful to our lovely community of GLOW members. You've supported us since 2008, and because of you, we get to continue to do the work we love. It's the combined support of our team, our teachers, and our community that grants me the privilege to continue to bring you the GLOW podcast. Thank you to Lee Schneider, Red Cub Agency, for production support. And the beautiful music you're hearing now is by Carrie Rodriguez and her husband, Luke Jacobs. And remember, take care of yourself because our world needs you. Thank you for coming on this journey with me. You can find The Glow Podcast on Spotify, Apple Podcasts, or glo.com slash podcast, or wherever you listen to your podcasts. I'm Derek Mills.